Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader. Thanks, everybody. First of all, thanks for everybody who responded to my uh, program from last week. I always appreciate getting all those responses. Um, This week, we have a couple of guests on this week, and uh, let me just sort of start out with a little introduction here. Those of you who watch crime and, uh, you know, cop criminal procedure lawyer shows on TV like CSI, which, by the way, I've never seen. Uh, but anybody who's watched this stuff for the last 20 years, you're all familiar with forensics, the uh, science, or we might find out later, the alleged science of forensics, especially as it applies to the criminal justice system. Uh, and we're familiar with forensics from reading about cases in the newspapers, from televised trials. 
the first time I remember being exposed to this, it's probably the same as true for tens of millions of uh, Americans, is the O.J. Simpson murder trial on court TV back in the 90s. Also, we, we read about this in uh, novels, police procedural novels, uh, documentaries, movies. We have, uh, we have two guests today who are co-authors of an upcoming article in the uh, cover, it's actually the cover story of the February 26th edition of The Nation magazine, and it's called The Crisis of American Forensics. And we have me and Christ and Tim Requarth uh, on with us today. Hiya. Hi, thanks for having us. Hello Hi, there. thanks for having us. Okay, now uh, my guests are on, you're on separate phones, right? Yes. All right, so this will be an interesting coordination. Um, <laughs> l- let me introduce my guests here so everybody knows who they're listening to. Me and Chris is a writer in residence in biological sciences at Columbia University. Uh, previously, she was an editor-at-large at Nautilus and reviews editor at The Believer. Her work has appeared in publications such as the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, the New Republic, London Review of Books, Scientific American, and Science, and she is the host of a uh, live new show, a new live show on podcast about the future called Convergence. Convergence. When's the live broadcast? Well, we are still in the process of hiring an audio editor, so the podcast is not yet launched, but the live show is usually the second Thursday of every month at Caveat in New York City. Okay. <clears throat> and um, good luck with that. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Tim Requath, am I saying your name right? Uh, yeah, that sounds great. Okay. is a freelance journalist, and he's based in New York City. His writing has appeared in publications such as the New York Times, Newsweek, Slate, Foreign Policy, and Scientific American. And he received his Ph.D. in neuroscience from Columbia University, where he also taught biology, chemistry, and science writing. And for nine years, he directed New Write, an international network of workshops for scientists and writers. So to start off, uh, this is a this is a, a long but absolutely fascinating article, and in the end, it could be a very important article about forensics. Um, uh, as I mentioned before, it applies to the criminal justice system. But the article um, is um, centered on one particular individual, one defendant, and uh, I'm not sure if it's the pronunciation of his name. Is it Jimmy Genrich? It's Genrich. Genrich. Genrick, right. Jimmy Genrick. And um, maybe you could tell, tell us who Jimmy Genrick is and what crimes he was accused of and convicted of. Anybody. Yeah, I mean, so, I don't see you, so whoever, you know. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll jump and figure it out. Okay. Um, so in the early 90s in Grand Junction, Colorado, uh, which is a, a smallish town to the west of the Rockies, at the time I think it was about 30,000 people, um, there was a series of pipe bombs that went off. Um, two people were killed, a third was injured, and there was a very high-profile investigation. Federal agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms were called in, and this investigation soon focused on this local man named Jimmy Genrick. Uh, he was 28 years old at the time. He had a history of mental illness, and at the time he lived alone in a boarding house that was within just a couple blocks of where three of the bombs had been set. Um, there was a search of his room at the boarding house, and some disturbing circumstantial evidence was uncovered. Mm-hmm. There were handwritten notes that were suggesting violence against women, 
Um, there was a toolbox that had or similar to those were found in the bomb. And there were some common household wires and wire strippers. Um, I'm, I'm having a little trouble with uh, your signal, but I guess with the cell phone, there's not too much we can do about it. I mean, you're in one location there, right? So um, um, maybe... Yeah I, can, yeah, I can move across the room, maybe. <laughs> we can try that. We can always try that. Um, now... Um, the uh, the bombs that went off these were uh, these were particularly uh, awful bombs. There wasn't any there wasn't any note left or nobody called into anonymously to a newspaper or uh, sit, nobody claimed responsibility for these bombs. Right? They were pipe bombs that really uh, that were really horrific. The the details of them you know, people can read in your article, but uh, nobody claimed that there wasn't any group or a person who claimed responsibility. Right. No, no claimed responsibility, and they really seem to target random strangers, which is part of why the town was so terrified by them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first was set in a, a parking lot of the downtown Two Rivers Convention Center. Um, another set in a parking lot outside a restaurant. Another one was set in the back wheel well of a van outside of uh, home of the Gonzalez family. Um, another was set, and they didn't go off. Uh, outside a motel parking lot. So mm. no connection between the bombs or the victims. Um, the bombs seemed to get stronger each time as the person was maybe learning how to set them a little bit better. Um, so the town was really good. And uh, uh, the man we're talking about right now, uh, Jimmy's basically in jail for the last, what is it, 25 years? Yeah, he's been incarcerated for 25 years, and he has steadfast maintained his innocence. From the very beginning, all the way through. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so, um, as far as uh, when you keep calling, you calling it circumstantial evidence, and as you, as your article reveals, as we go on and read about the uh, trial and what happened, um, it was um, also a case of the way the. I'd like you to discuss the way the police and uh, later the federal, the local police, and then the federal authorities. How how they got involved in this and how they um, conducted their investigation and uh, what came from that? Yeah, so I think that the um, the most important thing, as Mian mentioned, was the it was primarily a case based on circumstantial evidence. Jimmy Genrick came to the police's attention because two uh, women at a local bookstore that he had requested the anarchist cookbook, which, among other things, contains a diagram for how to make a pipe bomb. Mm-hmm. They began following him. The federal agents from the uh, ATF were called in, and they be- began following him around the town for several months. And when they seized the household tools from his apartment, that formed the cornerstone of their case. And the reason that those tools were so important is they sent them to an examiner at the ATF, and there's this technique called toolmark analysis where you can look at the microscopic scratches that a tool would leave behind on you know, a piece of metal or uh, whatever it is you're using the tool for. And in this case, they found bomb fragments that they claimed were linked to the household tools found in Jimmy's apartment, and that's how they indicted and uh, eventually convicted him. So aside from that, aside from that, um, 
And it, uh, we can. I want to. I want you to elaborate on tool marks uh, and the whole, you know, alleged science of it uh, later on. It's it's a form of pattern matching, something you discuss. But um, as far as what was what other evidence was there? It's all circumstantial, and that was the only really quote unquote hard evidence. But what else was presented at the trial to the jury? They presented the handwritten notes that they'd found in his apartment, and those notes had uh, violence against women. They displayed a lot of anger and frustration, and they seemed really damning in a sort of circumstantial way. There was, of course, the anarchist cookbook. There was, it was made more a big deal in the indictment, but he did have a history of mental illness, and they used that to gain one of the search warrants, we believe, uh, although it didn't figure as much in the trial. Mm-hmm. Some of the other circumstantial evidence was he had attended DeVry, where he learned how to make electronic uh, circuits. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was part of it. But they didn't find any gunpowder. They didn't really find any equipment that could conclusively be called bomb-making equipment. Uh, really, the only physical evidence were those uh, scratches from the, that they claim to match the tools. Now, the people, uh, as I mentioned earlier when I was introducing this uh, whole um, subject here in the article, people are familiar for the last 20, 30 years, I guess it is now. Um, and it really was, uh, I don't know how far back you go, but the O.J. Simpson trial until then, of course, that, that made DNA famous, but we're not talking about DNA here right now. The, all these other things, like in the O.J. Simpson murder trial, then people became aware of um, all kinds of experts uh, where we had uh, footprints, uh, we had uh, you know gloves, uh, we had all kinds of things. And this kind of thing uh, is called pattern matching, right? Can you explain what pattern yeah. matching is in general? Sure. So pattern matching primarily is uh, when an examiner tries to link a something found at the scene of the crime with a, a specific suspect. So it can be anything from fingerprints, which would be a form of pattern matching. Uh, you match the patterns of whorls and swirls on a fingerprint taken from the scene of the crime to a fingerprint taken from a suspect. It could be a footprint. You try to match a footprint to a specific shoe. Uh, it's often used to match a, um, they'll look at the little microscopic markings on a bullet and try to match that to a specific gun that was fired. And the thing that unites all of the pattern matching disciplines is that it involves the subjective judgment of an examiner. It's not an objective science in the same way that DNA is, where you can, if done correctly, you can run it through laboratory tests. It's uh, based on very sound scientific principles, and the results, uh, the accuracy of the, and reliability of the results can be quantified with great certainty. But everybody um, that I know of and everybody I've ever talked to about this assumes, and I, should they or not, they assume that um, this, this uh, the, I keep calling it the science, I don't know what we call it, the practice of ballistics uh, in terms of fired uh, uh, bullets fired from a certain gun, and especially fingerprints. People take that for granted, that, uh, that a fingerprint match is absolutely uh, gospel, that there's no, there's no possibility of error in those, especially those two things, and, and in forensics in general. So how did the public become convinced generally, uh, before we get into a little bit of the, the history of forensics, how did the public become convinced that these things are, 
absolutely, uh, absolutely, and actually true and probative. There's no, there's no uh, discussion. It's true. Well, I think it's important to point out that there are some forensic disciplines that are really sound. You know, things like DNA, or you know, when we're looking at sort of forensic chemistry, those disciplines arose from empirical testing that happened off in academic settings. Um, that gave us knowledge about the world around us, right? We know how certain chemicals react. Um, we understand certain things about the human genome. And then that information and those kinds of tests can be adapted and adapted by forensic experts for use in courtrooms and for use in solid crimes. The difference is that the pattern matching disciplines really arose from crime labs. Had people who were trying to come up with clever ways to solve crime rather than using empirically tested science to examine materials from a crime scene. So in these matching disciplines, you get an examiner who gets up to testify and says, you know, there's a one in a billion chance that I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe in these techniques, and we've used them for decades, and they've been accepted in court for decades, and this tool can, you know, is the only tool in the world to possibly have made these marks. Right. The problem is the scientific testing hasn't actually been done. We haven't really looked at all the tools in the world to know if every single one, in fact, is a unique mark. It's an interesting idea, uh, and it may be true, but it hasn't been tested. Uh, We also don't know the viability of forensic examiners' testimony. So when someone says this is the only tool in the world that could have made these marks, are they usually right? You know, do they make a mistake really in 10 billion times, or did they make a mistake one in 100 times, mm-hmm. one in six times? And those tests have not been done. So, um, oh, the comparison of the, of, the, of, the, of the tests and, and the amount of errors involved, that hasn't really been... But there's, yeah, there's some... I mean, it varies, yeah, it varies from discipline to discipline. So as we'll probably talk a little bit about later, there has been some recent high-profile reports criticizing right, some of these disciplines. And in, the, and in the wake of those, there were, you know, some studies, mostly with fingerprints and a little bit with um, ballistics matching bullets to guns that do give a better idea of the error rates. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're in the ranges of 1 in 50 or 100 for guns and maybe 1 in, you know, two or 300 for fingerprints, which sounds really good. But when you think about the number of cases, well, that's, in which fingerprint evidence is yeah. introduced, it's and and the way that they testify in court, which is you know once the FBI head of the FBI's fingerprint laboratory said there's a one in eleven million chance that our examiners make an error, and that was simply because he had only heard of one error, mm-hmm. and so the the, the reliability uh, that examiners uh, claim seems to be wildly out of proportion with what the data what little data there is can support. Let me make a suggestion to see if it's... Well, let me suggest something first, see if it's possible. Um, Tim's phone seems to, for some reason, who knows, uh, is a lot clearer than yours, Mian. And I wonder, is it possible to just switch it over when you're... um, Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, because I I don't want to lose anything here. Um, um, So as far as forensics go... What is a, a, just a very, very brief history of forensics? I mean, when did, this all, when did this whole thing start, generally? So this sort of started in the, um, in the beginning of the 20th century. 
there was a huge upsurge of interest in science and in scientific techniques. And it was a time when, you know, you had the World Fair and all of these sort of new scientific ideas were being introduced and a lot of pseudoscientific ideas were being introduced. Um, and crime labs kind of jumped on this bandwagon and realized that they could sort of make crime solving more scientific and make prosecution uh, more what they believe to be more sound, but also, you know, they would be more likely to get convictions. Hmm. Um, so you had people who were doctors, who were professors, uh, and also who were just kind of quacks titling random techniques and, you know, machines that they had invented. You had inventors coming up with things like, you know, th this is when the polygraph, for example, was introduced, um, which we now know is not reliable at all. And it's no longer allowed in courts, but it's still used in investigations. It's still used in uh, all, all sorts of levels of the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. um, but there really there were a, a, a wide range of techniques that somewhere out, you know in the early 20th century they realized they needed the the courts needed to do something to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff. And there is uh, maybe maybe this could blend right into uh, talking about the history of forensics. Um, when did the courts start to get involved? When were the when was the first time let's say higher courts or even the Supreme Court? Uh, made some kind of decision or an, uh, pronouncement about uh, forensics? Well, it goes back to the 1923, actually, with one of the first cases to introduce polygraph. And the judges in that case decided that it wasn't a reliable technique and actually uh, barred it from being introduced as evidence into court. Other judges picked up on that ruling, and after a number of years, it became the sort of informal standard. The importance of that ruling was that it put judges in the gatekeeping position of deciding what evidence was reliable enough to present in front of the jury. Surprisingly, courts didn't really, the Supreme Court didn't weigh in on this until almost 70 years later, in 1993, the series of rulings. And... In those rulings, they required that it have um, some more stringent scientific report, that there were reportable error rates, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Judges did remain in the gatekeeping position. The problem with that 1993 ruling and a few others that occurred after it was that most of the techniques that had already been in the courts for decades, uh, fingerprints, ballistics, uh, tool mark, uh, etc., pretty much got grandfathered in. They didn't have those hearings and present the evidence the way they might do for a new technique, like they, like they actually did for DNA, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, there was, this is something that there is something you mentioned in your article called the Daubert Standard. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, that would have been the 1993 ruling, the, the uh, Daubert Standard. That's the name of the case, and it is the one that requires... Uh, acceptance by the scientific community, being able to present error rates based on scientific principles, uh, a few other prongs of that ruling, but that's the gist. So as you point out, though, uh, by that time, uh, it had become so established in the public mind uh, and so established in court cases and precedent, which is so important in, uh, mm -hmm. in the uh, judicial system, that, uh, that you were talking uh, at this point of thousands, maybe tens of thousands of cases in the criminal justice system. 
that had been set in stone and appeals all the way up uh, to the highest courts. And uh, this evidence uh, was accepted. So to uh, to suddenly turn on it and to question it at its very foundation would be to upset a gigantic system, like trying to turn an ocean liner around, right? That's a great point. Uh, the implications of questioning techniques that have, as you say, been used for thousands of convictions and have been upheld by thousands of judges is a, really an indictment of a large part of the criminal justice system. Uh, it would erode trust in it, and there's the very real possibility that if wrongful convictions were discovered, uh, there can be huge um, civil penalties uh, levied on municipalities, counties, states, and that, that's an enormous expense. And I, I think there's a lot of reticence to go back and revisit old cases. Also, you've got the cultural uh, cultural problem is that uh, for the last 20 years, maybe it's more, there are uh, endless uh, television shows and movies that, uh, that, that show scientific, quote-unquote, scientific absolutes when it comes to forensic evidence presented. Uh, and the public, you know, I mean, witness who's the president. You know, it's an entertainment republic right now. And um, people are used to seeing this. They're so used to seeing this that they would probably be, in general, and maybe this is something your article can do for people, is they would be shocked to find out that what they've been seeing or reading about in the papers or, you know, looking at in documentaries wasn't absolutely scientific. Yeah, I think this is a big problem also in terms of any kind of reform. You know, as Tim was saying, and as you were saying, this is like trying to turn a giant tanker that's you know been barreling in one direc- direction for decades. Um, but there's also this sort of bias now that's built into the courtroom system where a lot of prosecutors believe that juries expect forensic evidence. And it's partly because the decision is really difficult to decide, you know, am I going to put this person away for life? You know, is this person guilty or innocent? And so having something that enters the courtroom with all of the authority of science and has this kind of 100% certainty makes that decision a lot easier. And it's something that Hmm. prosecutors really believe that juries want. It's actually called the CSI effect. Um, And whether or not juries actually need forensic evidence is sort of disputed, but it does seem that prosecutors believe that they need this kind of evidence. So prosecutors really have a vested interest in resisting reform because it could weaken one of their most powerful prosecutorial tools, as well as threaten cases currently underway and call past convictions into question. Um, But juries really need to understand what it is they're seeing and be able to make decisions about the quality of the evidence that's being presented. But also the evidence needs to be presented honestly and truthfully and without overstatement. There, there is, um, there is a, one of these, there's a phrase which is, seems to be, pops up all over the place with this, uh, and it's used in all these courts because I guess it was originally used and it sounds so uh, weighty. It's... Um, and this relates to forensic evidence. It says, um, sufficient to exclude to a moral certainty every reasonable hypothesis of innocence. Yeah, and that's, you're getting at that question of reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. You know, your prosecutors are able to use forensic evidence. And another one of the phrases that comes up is, you know, to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty, which 
you know, you look at that and what does that mean? You know, to a jury, that basically means 100%. Like, it's scientifically certain. (laughs) Um, And so that evidence carries a lot of weight and can often tip the scales in terms of reasonable doubt. In the last uh, in the last several years, uh, it's def- definitely recently in terms of time. Uh, there have been a couple of high court judges uh, or people who have served on very high level courts who have been very adamant about questioning all this. Can you talk about these judges and what they've said? Yeah. So one of the one judge that's been an outspoken critic of forensic science. Uh, is Harry Edwards, who is a uh, chief of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. He's a federal judge. And he was a co-chair on one of the subcommittees that wrote this bombshell report uh, in 2009 from the National Academy of Sciences. And that report assessed the state of the field. And what they found was that the pattern-matching disciplines that we've talked about, the fingerprints, the bullets, et cetera, I believe that Judge Edwards later described it as a forensic community in disarray. Hmm. Uh, they really hadn't done the level of rigorous scientific testing that judges thought had been done, prosecutors thought had been done, juries assume has been done, accreditation standards were all over the place, crime laboratory standards were all over the place. It was really a full-throated indictment of the forensic community. And Judge Edwards has been really outspoken about that, and and he's a a leader in the judicial field. There was another judge, I think also, I think she was in uh, the D.C., also in the D.C. um, Circuit Mm -hmm. Court of Appeals, uh, who, I think if I remember the article correctly, uh, compared this um, forensics and uh, the the results that were used in court as the same as going to a psychic. Yeah, I believe that was Judge uh, Catherine Easterly. And you are starting to see opinions like that uh, occur around the country, which they've been relatively rare in the past. And so it's important for judges on influential courts to say, you know, hey, we're going to go back to the Daubert ruling. We're going to say you need to provide the evidence. We're not going to just look at precedent. Precedence is simply what other judges said in the past. And it's really important that that those judges do that because then if you have a defense lawyer in a trial court somewhere, you know, in a county in Colorado, for example, they can say, look, the, you know, Colorado Supreme Court agrees with me. The federal judge of the D.C. Circuit agrees with me. And so that's why those rulings are so important. Uh, to get back with uh, Jimmy Genrick, um, the um, the uh, federal the ATF people sent uh, sent uh, the tools and uh, portions of these bombs that were recovered or the pipes or whatever they got with wires. They sent it all to the crime lab, the ATF crime lab, and a man named named John O'Neill. Uh, after what he claimed was exhaustive testing, and then he came up with the evidence that finally convinced the jury. And this is a tool mark basically uh, involving uh, Genrick's um, uh, wire strippers and I think maybe one other tool in his toolbox. Um, And this is what finally uh, did him in, and uh, the jury convicted him. So uh, you have done your own research. that, According to this, you've done um, 
a tremendous amount of research and interviewing about tool marks. You sort of took it upon yourself to do this, which is an incredible um, contribution to the whole field. But tell me a little bit about the research you both did. Yeah, so we talked to forensic examiners and we spoke with, you know, judges, prosecutors, DAs. Um, We spoke with scientists, academic scientists. We spoke with statisticians. We spoke with people who study wrongful convictions. Um, But we also went back to what would be the original literature in this field, which is basically trade journals that are published by forensic, uh, forensic communities. You know, so the the ATF has its own, you know, sort of forensic, uh, you know, people people who do um, bullet exam, excuse me, examinations, for example, have their own kind of forensic journals, and uh, there are a lot of places where you can find, you know, descriptions of individual studies that have been done, but they're not done according to basic empirical standards that are kind of the standards that are accepted in academic science. Um, they're often not very large sample sizes. So, you know, you have a, a quote-unquote study that's based on like six or seven cases. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the same as having a large sort of double-blind study with 2,000 different cases. Um, there's a lot of argument that studies should be done uh, in the flow of normal, course, or of normal casework. So the people who would be tested wouldn't know that they were being tested. Right. Um, that's very hard to do, mostly because crime labs are really, really busy. And so you end up instead with tests that are separate from normal casework, where sometimes they're relatively easy. Um, sometimes there's a set number of, you know, let's say there's like six guns and six bullets, and you know that one gun goes to every bullet. <laughs> you know, right. that's a very different kind of test than the sort of test where you have one bullet and one gun, and did it come from this gun or not? Um, so the kinds of studies that have been done are not as rigorous as one would hope for an empirical science. Um, And in fact, we found only one study that really matched all of the basic, and these are really basic scientific standards, you know, the basic scientific Mm -hmm. method. Um, And I believe it was eight examiners who were looking at screwdrivers and the marks that screwdrivers make. Um, And they, in fact, did very well, uh, which is great. But one test with eight examiners on one kind of household tool is not validation for an entire field that's looking at screwdrivers, wire cutters, you know, the marks that knives make, wrenches. It, it, it's sort of absurd that you have this one tiny test that's the only sort of empirically gold standard test mm-hmm. in all of this literature. In the course of the, uh, in the beginning, when the defense uh, was, uh, do, you know, preparing and then um, presenting its case in uh, the Jimmy um, Genrich um, trial, uh, the defense lawyer uh, noticed this right away, this lack of scientific foundation, uh, academic and scientific foundation to all these, um, all these uh, forensic reports that were being uh, presented by the prosecution. And uh, she called on um, some uh, scientific, academic scientists to testify. And how did that go over with the jury? Well, from our understanding and from the ultimate conviction, it uh, probably didn't go over too well. Uh, mm. But it you know, should be noted that the, in a lot of ways the defense lawyer, uh, Brittany Flanick, was ahead of her time. Uh, there 
there weren't these reports uh, from major scientific organizations. There weren't the judges from major courts making a handful of rulings. Uh, she was she had a, a background actually in science, and she thought that tool mark analysis would be a science because that's what she she learned and understood. And when she looked into it, she was shocked to find that it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And she mounted her defense uh, to challenge the entire field. And while that might be a convincing argument to statisticians and more uh, scientifically minded uh, people, it's it's hard to put up against what can look like a you know what can be a very visually compelling. Right, uh, all these apparent uh, match ch- charts are presented. Uh, everybody's familiar with this. You see these charts, and they're they're very you know, and uh, the videos. There's no end to what is being presented, and it appears scientific. It's it's kind of a double whammy that uh, people who are accused of crimes have to put up with. I remember a long time ago, I was a probation officer in New York City, and New York mm-hmm. and New York State probation officer, and I used to go into courts uh, when I wasn't uh, busy, or even when I was busy, but I went into the courts anyhow because it was so fascinating to me. And when you would see a trial, uh, all you had to see is, uh, or the jury or the judge had to see, especially juries, was A, a cop, uh, a detective, and B, uh, somebody who said that they were presenting scientific evidence. That was the end of the thing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? People are Mm -hmm. so used to this. (laughs) I can only hope that an article like yours and the way things are going changes that because people just accept this scientific A and... uh, police be authority as uh, something you just don't question. So I, I, I can only hope that that turns around. As far as, um, as far as these reports you've mentioned, you said there was a couple of very big reports uh, fairly recently in terms of time. Uh, can you talk about what these reports were, where they were from, and what they said? Yeah, the first uh, report was in 2009 from the National Academy of Sciences which is the most prominent scientific body uh, in the United States. And they, um, they were actually asked to do it by senators who were interested in increasing funding to address backlogs in crime labs. But when they ended up looking at the field, they, they found, as we said before, a, a community in disarray, uh, all of the problems with pattern matching and, and crime labs. The, Next major report was in 2016, and that was done by a Scientific Advisory Council to the White House. And again, this is... Uh, it's under Obama, right? It, this one was under Obama, right. but the, the council has existed under previous administrations as well. Although it should be noted, it does not exist under this current administration. Hmm. And they also did a report in some ways a follow-up to the 2009 report, uh, but in other ways different. And they really focused on some of the pattern matching disciplines and whether there had been research done since 2009 to address those issues. And they found that for the most part, you know, with the exception of fingerprints, they, they had not, although it should be added that the evidence for matching bullets to guns is coming along, but of course with far less certainty than examiners have claimed in court. Mm. And, and these reports uh, were presented to uh, congressional committees, or who, were they, who, who received this information? Yeah, so Congress would receive this information. They're available to the public. Uh, they're 
you know, disseminated widely through the legal communities. Uh, so they receive a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And um, t- what about the Department of Justice and all this? I mean, Jeff Sessions was a prosecutor originally, right? That's correct. And then a senator, and now um, I guess we could call him until tomorrow we pick up the paper or something like that. He's still the attorney general. So what is the what is the Department of Justice and uh, the current administration's attitude about uh, forensics and these reports and all this? So interestingly, Jeff Sessions was one of the senators that was sort of part of that push behind the original NAS report in 2009. He's for a long time been a real advocate of getting more money into uh, crime labs in order to deal with this backlog and sort of move things along more quickly. Um, he, I would suspect, was deeply surprised by the NAS report. It was not what the senators were hoping for. Mm-hmm. Um, and he now, as the head of the DOJ, has basically appointed a prosecutor from Missouri named Ted Hunt to head oh, right. all of the internal... Uh, review and revision of forensic science. Can you tell us a little um, bit about who? Uh, explain who Ted Hunt is, because this was something was uh, shouldn't be surprising to me. But I mean, his background and what he's doing. Yeah. So Ted Hunt uh, was he was actually originally on. There was a committee called the National Commission on Forensic Science that came out of that 2016 PCAST report, and this was an interdisciplinary group with academics and forensic experts and prosecutors and you know lawyers that uh, didn't have a lot of teeth, but it met, I think, four times a year and gave recommendations to the DOJ around reform. Uh, Ted Hunt, as a voting member of this committee, or rather this commission, tended to vote against reforms. So, for example, he voted against dropping the phrase to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty from expert testimony. Hmm. Um, We also obtained records of meetings that Hunt attended this fall, and they reveal that he either doesn't have a firm understanding of basic scientific standards or is really willfully ignoring them. So, for example, he said that the jury was still out on bite marks, and bite marks is a technique that has been really roundly discredited at this point, and it was sort of shocking to hear that that the prosecutor would stand up and say the jury's still out. On bite marks. Now that you mentioned bite marks, maybe you can, because uh, this was something in the article that you two wrote that was really, um, <clears throat> really stood out in a way in terms of the uh, lack of science that was really involved in all this. Uh, maybe give an example of what was this particular case about bite marks. Yeah, so bite marks is a, is a real cautionary tale in the world of forensics. It was introduced in a single case in 1974, I believe. Uh, where uh, the the basic technique is you'll see markings on a victim's skin that perhaps resemble uh, what would have been made by human teeth. And a set of dentists tried to link those bite marks conclusively to um, a single individual. That ruling uh, then formed the basis for all subsequent uh, approval of bite mark evidence into cases after that. And it began to be widely used. It's, of course, not as common as fingerprints or ballistics, but mm. the degree of subjective judgment in, in bite marks is, is through the roof. You, skin is a very pliable, soft material. People were looking at bite marks uh, on bodies that were months old, had been submerged in water. Uh, 
in some ways it's like tea leaves. You can see what you want in it. Mm-hmm. And a number of convictions were um, secured using bite marks. Uh, some of the best reporting on that has been out of the Washington Post from uh, Radley Balco. And it's, it's, it's really a, it's been thoroughly discredited by the scientific community as having no basis in scientific uh, principles. But also the examiner rates are, uh, sometimes they can't even tell the difference between a human and an animal bite mark. So it's, it's true pseudo- pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, so now that you said that's completely discredited, that's not accepted anymore. It is, yet shockingly, there's never been a single negative um, admissibility ruling against it in a court in the United States. Mm-hmm. As far as uh, as far as the error rate now, what makes this important uh, to say the least is that a lot of people have been convicted and executed based on forensic evidence um, for capital crimes, and there are people now who are in jails all over the country. Uh, state and federal crimes who are in jail um, who are you know uh, who were convicted of capital crimes and uh, very serious crimes and they are awaiting some of them perhaps are awaiting execution or serving life sentences Uh, and you did some research on the amount of error involved in the number of people who are who are uh, you know suffering from this and also the innocence project is involved maybe you could explain a little bit about the Innocence Project, and uh, maybe you could talk about uh, what the number of people involved here that we're talking about who are suffering from this uh, from this public belief in this uh, alleged science. Yeah, that's a great question, and the the numbers are notoriously hard to estimate. Obviously, if we knew the number of wrongfully convicted uh, people in the justice system, we would uh, let them out uh, of uh, prison. However. Th- there is some clues. And so the Innocence Project uh, looked at all of the cases that have later been exonerated by DNA testing, and they uh, found that faulty forensic science was present in uh, 50% of those cases. 50%? The 50%. So it was a contributing factor. There are often multiple factors. There can be official misconduct, there can be unreliable eyewitness testimony. So it's, again, very tricky to say the case uh, was clinched only by the forensic evidence. But according to the Innocence Project, it was a contributing factor. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> it's really extraordinary. So um, the, uh, how, can, how can people, so I, uh, people can read uh, the Nation magazine, uh, the uh, February 26th edition, and uh, the article, again, is called The Crisis of American Forensics. Uh, how can people, if you want them to, can they get in touch with, uh, with you, with me and, and with you about, uh, about to talk about this if they've read the article or they're interested in anything else about this? Well, you can find both of us on Twitter under our, our names. Um, and we both have websites, again, that are just our names. Um, and we're happy to talk with anyone who'd like to reach out to us. Okay, and this is The Nation magazine, uh, the February 26th edition, and it's The Crisis of American Forensics. Um, it would really be quite something to, uh, to shift this ocean liner after all this time, especially the cultural effect of this. Um, do, do you two watch these shows at all, ever? You know, I don't have a television. But <laughs> good, I good for you. 
<laughs> Good for you. Good for you. All right. Well, thanks again. Me and Chris and Tim Requarth, um, who are writers who have the uh, and researchers who have done this wonderful article for The Nation magazine. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. Okay. Um, <clears throat> this is Mike Fader, and uh, the name of this show is uh, The Turning Point. We're here every Friday live uh, at uh, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on uh, uh, on PRN.FM. And um, once again, thanks for everybody who uh, gets in touch with me about these shows. As I mentioned uh, many times before, um, and I'm going to mention again, uh, it makes it all worthwhile to hear that you're listening, uh, especially um, in this odd world of the podcast. I've been on live radio. I was on live radio, still am doing live radio here for close to 35 years and uh, got so used to people responding um, to uh, each live show. I mean, people don't call up that much on a lot of podcasts. And But now I'm getting, inf- I'm getting replies. Uh, uh, loved your show of or was interested in your show when you talked about, and sometimes it's seven, eight weeks <laughs> before, uh, seven, eight weeks uh, you know, uh, ago that I did this show something uh, that I hardly remember. I'd have to check my notes or uh, take a look at what I was talking about. So um, not only do I appreciate the responses, but I appreciate whenever people get in touch uh, on a current show. If you've listened to a podcast uh, fairly recently, let me know. Okay, once again, this is The Turning Point with Mike Fader every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. You want to get in touch with me, Go to my website, FaderFiles, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S.com, FaderFiles.com. And uh, next week, we are going to talk about a couple of articles that were in the paper recently, uh, one of which fascinates me because it, uh, <clears throat> it shows the bottom line or one of the ways that, uh, that technology use results in the bottom line of an actual effect on the human race itself. I mean, there are so many effects that we can see with our own eyes, but when you, when, you, when you look at this, the article is basically referring to the fact that um, people are suggesting that fertility rates, fertility rates and the amount of sex that people have, especially in the 18 to 30-year-old range, has been reduced, severely reduced, and is going down. The amount of sex and the fertility rate of countries where uh, technology use is prevalent more than any uh, more than it's ever been before, and there's a direct correlation, almost a direct correlation between the use of cell phones and the use of the internet and um, a falling fertility rate. Uh, and there are reasons for that, which I'll get into next week. Also, this is linked with another article that I read about the uh, about an incidence where people are able to have their own personal support pets. And how do these two things relate to each other? They do very clearly. It has to do with this whole me society, I, me, um, you know, what uh, it's a a total combination of uh, out of control narcissism and technology. So this is what we're going to talk about next week. Okay, thanks again. And I will see you next week. Well, it's all.
California rain. 